from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Monday, August 17th. Today, inside Trump's obsession with the Postal Service, what young Black voters want, and why hunting and fishing groups are pushing for action on climate change. President Trump's relationship to the Postal Service is contentious, it's hostile, and it is now front and center of every election news cycle. My name is Ashley Parker, and I cover the White House for The Washington Post. His animosity towards the Postal Service started soon after he took office in 2017. He immediately sort of seized on the Postal Service as an emblem of the bloated bureaucracy of government. He would privately to aides call it a loser. The Postal Service has lost billions of dollars every year for many, many years. He did not like it because it was a business that lost money. And then very quickly, his animosity turns to disliking the Postal Service because of how he associates it with Amazon. I'll tell you who's the demise of the Postal Service are these internet companies that give their stuff to the Postal Service packages. And I don't know why they're not, you know, I don't run the Postal Service. You have a group of people, so-called independent people, and they run it. But these packages are... Uh, They deliver, they lose money every time they deliver a package for Amazon or these other internet companies, these other companies that deliver. He believes incorrectly that the Postal Service is giving Amazon a sweetheart deal and is losing money because it's helping Amazon. And he does not like Amazon because of another misconception, which is Jeff Bezos owns Amazon. Jeff Bezos also owns the Washington Post. The Amazon Washington Post. There is no connection between Amazon and The Washington Post other than we share the same owner. And Jeff Bezos has no hand in our news coverage whatsoever. But the president either doesn't seem to understand that or pretends not to understand that. And whenever he is angry with The Post, which he is frequently because our our coverage of him is is tough. The Washington Post of Amazon. That's my opinion. The lobbyist Washington Post. For Amazon, and he ought to be ashamed of himself because what they do to his reputation, I think maybe it's probably no good anyway. He calls us the Amazon Washington Post. So early on, he does not like the Postal Service for a range of reasons. And that fixation kind of, it has pivoted from being all things critical of his conflation of the Post with Amazon with Jeff Bezos to now really being all about the U.S. Postal Service. Why is he so fixated on the U.S. Postal Service now? Well, he's fixated on the U.S. Postal Service now because of the election, because with coronavirus, there is an increasing push and increasing likelihood that a number of voters will vote via mail, via mail-in ballots. And the president has convinced himself with no actual evidence for this election or any real historical evidence that mail-in voting is rife with fraud and abuse. Three and a half billion dollars for the votes themselves, which sounds like a lot of money they're looking for. Three and a half billion dollars. Think of that. Three and a half billion dollars to have mail-in ballots. Uh, Again, absentee good, universal mail-in 
very bad. Uh, and that will lead to the election being rigged or somehow stolen for him. And because the post office inherently will be delivering these mail-in ballots, he is now trying to withhold funding from the Postal Service. It also seems like this idea of mail-in ballots really gets under his skin. Why is he so fixated on them? For whatever reason, he believes that mail-in ballots will benefit Democrats. And he often speaks of mail-in voting as, you know, rife with fraud and abuse. And, you know, there's some states that will send ballots to people even if they haven't requested a ballot. And in general, if you look at the president's comments and his behavior and some of the, the behavior of the Republican Party writ large, they're they're trying to limit access to voting, Um even before mail-in ballots, just with things like voter ID laws and making it harder for certain populations to vote. And mail-in balloting, of course, makes it easier, in theory, for everyone to vote. Um, And that's something that worries the president. And especially in this era where you do have people who are rightly worried about going to the polls because of coronavirus. It also seems out of line with his own actions in the middle of a pandemic, considering the fact that the president and the first lady have already requested mail-in ballots from Florida. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's there's a number of people in the president's administration who have voted via the mail in previous elections. And the president's campaign has programs to get people to to send in their votes via the mail. And one thing that remains confusing is the president clearly believes that mail-in voting will benefit the Democrats. But in fact, there's not necessarily evidence that, that it would benefit the Democrats. There, there's, you know, if Republicans can turn out their votes via the mail and a lot of Republican voters are older, the sorts of people who have these comorbidities we hear about um, in terms of age with coronavirus that would make it very risky for them to go to the polls, they very well may be the people who use mail-in voting to or absentee voting to cast a ballot for the president. Outside of this fear that mail-in voting would benefit Democrats, he also levies the accusation that there is a huge risk of mail-in fraud. And I'm wondering if there's any real evidence of widespread vote-by-mail fraud that the president talks about. There is no real evidence of widespread mail-in voting fraud. I will say that in 2016, when the president, of course, won. He won the Electoral College, but he did lose the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. AIDS sort of reassured him, and and he was very sensitive about that. AIDS reassured him and made him feel better about that by telling him, again, with no evidence, that the reason he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton was because of widespread mail-in voting fraud. So that might be one of the ways it first got lodged in his head. What is the House planning to do about this? You know, the the Democratic-led House is taking this very seriously, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is planning to call the House back into session to vote on a bill that would help give the United States Postal Service the money that it needs. And what about Republicans? What are they saying about this? Republicans, you know, I've, I've talked to some Republicans. One thing that was striking to me in the story we wrote that was that someone like Lindsey Graham, who is a close ally of the president, even he came out and said he understands why the president is concerned about the Postal Service. He understands it has to do with voter fraud. But he basically said, this is not the fight to pick. 
And there were also some Republicans who were generally uncomfortable with the president's comments where he sort of laid out so explicitly that the reason why he is opposed to funding the Postal Service is because he believes that would then enable them to deliver ballots via the mail before Election Day. What about voters? I mean, the Postal Service is well-beloved and... It also carries so much besides mail-in ballots. That's right. I mean, I mean, the thing is, when you hear the president sort of say the quiet part aloud, as he did uh, in an interview with Fox News the other day. They want $25 billion for the post office because the post office is going to have to go to town to get these great, ridiculous ballots in. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting out and voting. You get out and vote. They voted during World War One and World War Two, and they should have voter ID because the Democrats scammed the system. But two of the items are the post office and the three and a half billion dollars for mail-in voting. Now, if we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means they can't have universal mail-in voting. They just can't have it. The thing that he seems to be forgetting is that people like the post office. In a lot of cases, it's sort of one of the few federal employees, your mailman or woman, who you know personally. And they bring you not just the final mile of packages, but also the magazines you want, letters from friends, and and most importantly, of course, something like prescription medicines that people and especially senior citizens rely on. So when you hamper the post office and you don't give the post office the money it needs, it's not just these ballots for November that might not get delivered. It is it is medicine that people desperately, desperately need. And especially now more than ever, when again, if you are someone who is receiving medicine in the mail, and you have some sort of comorbidity, you are probably more uncomfortable amid coronavirus to go out to your CVS or your Walgreens or your pharmacy to pick up that prescription. And I do think when people start getting their prescriptions delayed, that they are going to have a lot of questions about why the post office isn't able to perform its basic functions. In many ways, it seems like hearing what the president has to say about the Postal Service and hearing so explicitly what is motivating his desire not to provide support to the Postal Service is shocking, but it's also not necessarily any more shocking than some of the other things we've heard the president say. And I'm wondering, you know, what are the what are the broader implications of this as we look ahead at the election? Well, already one of the big concerns by Democrats is that the president will not accept the results of the election if he loses and that he's just sort of sowing chaos and confusion and uncertainty about the results of the election, which would benefit him if he loses to say, you know, this wasn't fair. This was rigged. I was robbed, which is something we saw the president say even after he won the election, even after winning the elections, one of his early acts as presidents was to set up this commission to investigate what he claimed was massive voter fraud because he was upset that he didn't also win the popular vote. And so no matter what happens, we already have voters who are going into this election, a lot of them wondering, you know, can can the results be trusted? You have some people worrying 
can the results be trusted because there's there's so much fraud and there's people trying to steal the election from President Trump, which, again, there's no evidence of that. And you have other voters who are wondering, you know, if if I do everything right, if I request my mail in ballot and I fill it out on time and I send it back early, how do I even know my vote is being counted? How do I know that this is not just another way of disenfranchising me? And it's worth noting that this sort of, again, uncertainty and chaos and confusion surrounding an election is the very sort of thing that foreign actors like Russia spend years planning to try to do to a democracy like the United States. And here you have the president, you can argue intentionally or inadvertently, sowing that same uncertainty and chaos. Ashley Parker covers the White House for The Post. We were interested in getting a sense of how young Black voters in Detroit feel about the upcoming presidential election, the Democratic ticket, particularly being that Kamala Harris would be on the ticket as vice president. And so we were interested in young voters' views on the election. In reporting that out, I kind of knew I wanted to tap into some of the young social justice movements that have been cropping up in the city uh, all summer as they have been all over the country. Look at all the things that we have been able to accomplish in 76 days. We've been accomplishing so much in so little time that politicians can't do. In Detroit, the groups here have been holding daily marches since the end of May. So I headed there to talk to people and find out what their views were the days after Kamala Harris had been announced as the vice presidential candidate. My name is Kayla Rubel. I'm a freelance journalist based in Detroit, Michigan, and I occasionally write for The Washington Post. So I'm wondering what made you want to report from Detroit, Michigan, and why is it so important to the presidential election, especially when it comes to young Black voters? You know, Detroit is a majority Black city, and it is the biggest city in Michigan. And Michigan obviously was a huge upset in the 2016 election with Trump winning, but winning by a really narrow margin by 11,000 votes roughly. In the aftermath of the election, it was clear that voter turnout was down in a lot of Michigan cities, particularly among Black voters. And I think the combination of the, you know, social justice and community um, activism movements that are happening in Detroit this summer makes it a really interesting place to see how these young, socially conscious, very involved activists and community members, you know, how they're feeling about the vote. I think sort of, you know, Detroit serves as a bellwether for how Black voters across the state um, would be thinking, and I think probably across the country as well. How do young Black progressive voters in Detroit feel about the vice presidential announcement and why? You know, of course, I think there's going to be a diverse spectrum of opinions, regardless of where you're looking in the Democratic Party or on the left or with progressives. And I I think that holds true here 
I've heard lots of different conversations. I've definitely seen lots of excitement, of course, of there being the first Black woman on the major party ticket as vice president. And so I think when talking at least to the activists and the people really involved in sort of the community grassroots work, people here are at the moment focused on so many hyper-local issues. There's concerns about evictions coming up in the next couple of weeks. There's the federal agents and police that are being dispatched by the Department of Justice this month. And also just years of buildup of other issues that are facing Detroit voters. So I think, you know, what's interesting is that I do often feel like the conversation here has more to do with these sort of super urgent issues as opposed to the conversations around the national campaign and who's running for president and all of that, which is not to say that these voters don't recognize that it's important, but they're really focused on these local issues. So I think when it comes to Kamala Harris, there wasn't necessarily a big reaction or, you know, it's not being it's almost not being discussed because they're just so focused on other issues. I'm also curious about are the sentiments that you've gathered from these young black voters in Detroit reflective of national perspectives? Yeah. So I think young black voters, I've seen a similarity in the cities that I've reported in from New York to Detroit. Something that I've observed that is similar is sort of a movement in spite of the party politics, the national politics and party affiliation as a whole. I think in past movements, you know, especially labor movements, for example, there's sort of a more direct tie with the Democratic Party. And I think the young, these sort of young activists that are cropping up right now, they're really more focused again on these local issues and the change that they can directly have and don't necessarily feel sort of this allegiance or direct tie to the Democratic Party, which doesn't mean that that they don't plan to vote. They do plan to vote from everyone that I've spoken to so far. And it doesn't mean that they don't plan to vote for Biden and vote, you know, mostly on the Democratic ticket. That's by and large what I'm hearing from people. But it's just that I think in their day-to-day activism and their conversations, that's not what they're talking about. Obviously, Detroit is just one city and, and Michigan is just one state. But I'm wondering if what you're seeing play out in Detroit is reflective of what we should expect to see in November, or if it's foreshadowing to a degree of of how people might vote or the sentiments that they'll take with them into the voting booth. They've experienced neglect from politicians in terms of policy, in terms of direct kind of feeling left behind in their cities. And so I think if these voters feel as though someone is either speaking to them or these movements are sort of energizing them to feel involved after they've sort of been living in these cities that have been neglected for for so long, that I think there's this feeling of wanting to make change directly yourself too in a way that it's not just voting at the ballot box. Kayla Rubel is a freelance reporter in Detroit. And now, one more thing. Last month, a group of 41 hunting and fishing groups urged Democrats and Republicans in Congress to do more to combat climate change by protecting the lands and waters that they use to recreate. My name is Dino Grandoni, and I cover energy and environmental issues at The Post. These groups are uh, asking the government to restore marshes, mangroves, and other wetlands that act as you know, barrier to flooding and also habitat for many of the animals they hunt and fish. 
but they're not very specific about the sort of action they want Congress to do. They are trying to avoid some of the more controversial ideas in Washington about how aggressively the U.S. needs to tackle climate change. It's interesting to see that these groups are pushing for this because many of them have conservative members. And this is the first time that they're asking for something like this in more than a decade. Uh, the last time Congress was seriously considering climate change legislation was back in 2009, 2010, when Obama was in office and Democrats had control of every lever of government. These hunting and fishing groups are trying to avoid weighing in on some of the more controversial ideas in Congress about how to tackle climate change, ideas like a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade scheme. But what they are pointing out is that a lot of the actions they'd like Congress to take to protect these areas would also have this other benefit, that being storing carbon dioxide in the environment and preventing it from getting into the atmosphere and warming up the planet. This letter is arriving in Congress less than 100 days until the next presidential election, which could grant Joe Biden and congressional Democrats more power in Washington, the power to actually pass major climate legislation. So these different groups want to make sure that they have a seat at the table if that's going to happen. Dino Grandoni covers energy and environmental policy for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.